This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. In 2005, three major hurricanes, Katrina, Rita, and Wilma, struck the U.S. Gulf Coast area, causing not just death and destruction, but leading to insurance payments and federal disaster relief of more than $180 billion. Today, say the authors of a new book titled At War with the Weather, Managing Large-Scale Risks in a New Era of Catastrophes, the U.S. is even more vulnerable to catastrophic losses. Written by Howard Kunruther and Erwan Michel Kerjan, with colleagues Neil Doherty, Martin Grace, Robert Klein, and Mark Pauly, At War with the Weather analyzes current thinking about catastrophes and proposes new, long-term solutions for reducing loss and providing financial protection against future disasters. Kunruther, professor of decision sciences and co-director of Wharton's Risk Management and Decision Processes Center, and Michel Kerjan, the center's managing director, recently talked to Knowledge at Wharton about their book. Uh, Howard and Evan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Uh, let me ask it a very basic question. Most of the time when people talk about nature, uh, they talk about living in harmony with nature. But your book is titled At War with the Weather. Why did you choose to emphasize conflict rather than harmony? Well, this is a really interesting first question. Uh, w- people like to think that they're in harmony with their environment, and then they get surprised. And it's because they get surprised that we felt that in some sense they weren't prepared to do war, but in many ways we are fighting a series of battles that have come on to people, sometimes in ways that are highly unexpected. And the consequences to them and to society can be extraordinarily large. So we felt this was a war that we should address. Well, just to complement that, I think living in harmony with nature also means understanding nature. And part of the nature is extreme events. I mean, has been with us for a long time, whether you're talking about hurricanes, floods, or earthquake. And as human beings, we have to understand that. Now, if knowing that, we decide to live massively on the coast where we are highly exposed to the natural extreme events we have to be ready to pay the price as well. So what was the reason that you wrote this book? Well, we have been thinking about these events for many years in the context of our Wharton Risk Center. We are focusing on low-probability, high-consequence events. But I think the principal reason that we wrote this book is that things have changed radically in the last 10 years. And that's the reason why we say a new era of catastrophes. And when you begin to look at the damage that is caused for many reasons in these areas, we felt it was important to try to rethink the the policies that we've been uh, focusing on over the last few years and try to come up with innovations, new ideas. And we felt it was time to do that. But why is, why is the problem greater now than it used to be? I mean, aren't there the same number of hurricanes and, and, and earthquakes and tornadoes that there have always been? Or More are they... people are moving into harm's way. Climate change is upon us. A combination of those factors plus a number of others have really made this problem much more severe than it has been in the past. And what we have tried to do here, too, is to put in one single place that book a lot of data, and we can come back to that in a few minutes. But that's one thing to say, yeah, maybe there have been 
the same number of hurricanes than before. And that's another thing to say, yes, there are more people. But the real question is how much more are people? How much more exposure do we have today? Just to give you one figure that we use at the beginning of the book, if you consider all disasters that happen somewhere in the world over the past 40 years, it's a long period of time, 40 years, all countries combined, to consider top 25 of these disasters for the insurance industry, you realize that two-thirds of them happened since 2001, and 12 or 13 of them here in the U.S., uh, that's pretty striking in terms of number. So whether you like it or not, uh, that's not even the issue. The issue is, yeah, we have already entered this new era of catastrophes. That's point number one. Point number two, now that we have recognized that, how do we move forward as policymakers, business people, or simple citizens? What would you say are some of the reasons why this new era of catastrophe is so much more intense than the past? And and what kind of innovations are needed to address it? Well, it's more not only a natural disaster front that this book talks about. And in the last chapter, we try to expand that to other type of extreme events. The financial crisis we are in now is, is a good illustration of that. But things about the swine flu, other type of pandemics, uh, terrorist attacks, uh, we are going to see more and more of these in the next few years. It's already happening uh, for a few reasons. One is the one that Howard and I mentioned on highly exposed uh, assets. Uh, the other thing is we are living in a small village, which means that we are more and more globalized. And what happened even 5,000 miles away from us will be on our desk tomorrow. And that's new. Uh, so high concentration of assets and people in high-risk areas combined with uh, interdependencies, and Howard can say more about that, uh, you, have, you have almost a perfect storm. I think that we could just turn to the financial crisis that occurred, certainly after this book was basically finished, to highlight the importance of knee, rethinking this problem and innovations. Financial crisis highlighted our myopia, the fact that we think in very, very short time frames, and I think we're all aware of that. And we are trying to get people to think long term. We are trying to get people to recognize that these are problems that have to be dealt with, with steps today that will have long term consequences. And our feeling is that this book should at least provide the motivation for, in, for individuals, policymakers, uh, not only in the U.S., but around the world, and as Erwan said, for events not only for natural hazards, which this book is definitely focusing on, but for other extreme events. And terrorism is certainly in the background, but we have a variety of these other events. So we really have tried to make the point that we need this new thinking of long term because of the myopic behavior. We are all very short-run oriented. So, so who in your in your thinking, should pay the costs associated with these catastrophes? Unless I'm sure you're thinking of a combination of individuals and insurers and the federal government, but what you know, what, what does your scheme come up with? Well, we we have raised that question right at the outset: who should pay? 
And we are not necessarily going to provide an answer because I think it depends on how society wants to treat this. If we all believe we are responsible in some sense for covering the losses of anyone living in an area, then all of us should be paying. If, on the other hand, we feel that it is important for people to take some responsibility and make recognize that they are in harm's way and that there is a price to pay, then one has to somehow take the stand that this is something that the people in these areas should pay. We do have two principles that we feel guide this book that relate to your question. One principle is that if you're going to use insurance, which is a mainstay of a lot of our policies here, then premiums should definitely reflect the risk so people know whether or not they're in harm's way and have some indication of what that is. And also, it encourages people to invest in risk-reducing measures because if the premiums reflect risk, they can get a discount. They can get something back if they take steps to reduce losses, which will not is not the case today. And everyone may want to say more about some of the challenges we face in a state like Florida, as an example. But we also have a second principle, and it also comes back, Robbie, to the question that you just posed, which is that we have to deal with equity and affordability. And there are going to be low-income people. There are going to be people who demand special treatment in these high hazard areas. And if the premiums are going to reflect the risk, then those premiums can be extraordinarily high. These people can say, we won't be able to afford this. So our second principle advocates some kind of of subsidy to these individuals, but we do not want them to come through insurance premiums. We feel they should come through something like an insurance stamp, like we have food stamps to help people uh, provide that. And that means that the insurance can still reflect the risk. Those two principles guide almost everything we want to do with respect to policy. Well, just to chiming on that, I think if you take a look not only at the US, but worldwide, that's true in Asia, that's true in Europe, the more devastating catastrophes have been, the more involvement you have from the public sector. Uh, historically, that has been true uh, in Europe. That's true now in Asia after a big earthquake in China last year. Uh, and that's true here in the US. I mean, for many, many years, America was seen as the temple of the free market. What we've seen after 9-11, after Katrina, now with financial crisis, that more and more people are asking the state or the federal government to jump in. What we try to show in the book, using, again, a lot of data to back that up and a lot of evidence is, well, this is not necessary. Uh, we, can, we can do better if we are creative, if we try to be innovative, bringing new solutions. And we can talk a little bit about the solution we have in this book. But so there's definitely a major role for the private sector to continue to play. So the Fed is not necessarily the answer, even if in many cases uh, that's been part of the answer. We don't want to downplay the, the public sector. I mean, it is a public-private partnership here. You may need well-enforced building codes. You may need land-use regulations. You're going to have to get a subsidy for the uh, the people deserving special treatment from some place, and one has to figure out where that's going to come. And we raise these somewhat as questions for everyone to think about because we don't want to somehow say this is the way one has to go. But uh, as Erwan was saying, we 
we can show the private sector can do a great deal more than it is currently doing if they are permitted to charge premiums that reflect risk because right now they're pulling out of areas. They're not staying into areas and you have states like Florida that are being taken over by uh, uh, public sector insurance companies, uh, the citizens in this case, that are not necessarily charging rates that reflect risk. We have a problem here. Could we talk a little bit about the solutions that you propose in your book? Uh, but also, uh, if you could uh, ref, ref, uh, think a little bit about the fact that after the financial crisis, uh, the insurance industry has really been destabilized quite a bit. Even a big insurer like AIG having collapsed. Uh, what's the appetite for innovative solutions in the insurance industry? to accept the kind of solutions that you are proposing? Hmm. Well, first, let's, uh, AIG is one insurance company. A number of others have not had the same problem. And I think we, we need to at least indicate the insurance industry is not necessarily suffering in quite the way that AIG suffered. And I think it's important to also raise the point that AIG didn't suffer because of its insurance operations. It suffered because of uh, an, an entity out in London that was doing a variety of things that generally is not part of what one thinks of as insurance. But uh, but I think there are a number of companies that are doing fine. But I, th- I, I think the, the issue with respect to uh, solutions and where which you're raising and, and I think insure the insurers are open to solutions now we would want to raise the question for everyone to think about does the financial crisis present an opportunity for change a small window of opportunity to rethink the problem we see the Obama administration trying to take advantage of that and we would like to take advantage of that with uh, with the idea of having a dialogue on new things that can be done with this short window uh, before it closes well, well, bottom line what, what's the book and, and more I mean outside the book and uh, we should say here that the book is just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, has been we've been working for three years with many people here at Wharton, Georgia State, and many public and private organizations in the U.S. and abroad. So, I mean, the book is not just another book. That's really more of a consensus book uh, as a result of three years of work. Uh, f- fundamentally, if you believe that this is a new era of catastrophes, you have to ask yourself, okay, can we continue with the same business models than before? And if most of your assumptions are not true anymore, you know, you know inside that you have to change the business model. And as always, there will be winners and losers. The winners will be the one who take the leadership on creating new solutions that no one had seen before. When you're talking about uh, personal responsibility and the idea of, of actually individuals playing more of a role, isn't that kind of a tricky situation? Because you're talking about events that happen rarely people forget about them very soon. Uh, And, you know, once the latest hurricane's gone, they don't want to pay anymore for something that probably, that they think may never happen to them. So, you know, this is kind of a, uh, a, a hard area to address. Well, you, you, I mean, yeah. you hit it on the head. This is this is exactly why we are focusing on myopia. Just what you said. We have our next crisis that takes the center stage, and we forget the previous one. Our recommendation is: think long term. Let's be very specific. Long term insurance, long term loans. 
Right now, we're working with and discussing with a number of different parties long-term flood insurance. It's a national program. Everyone has done a lot of work on some of the challenges with the flood program. We've been thinking about that issue over the years. Why not have a long-term program so that you are able to somehow deal with the situation in a way that we currently are? And most people cancel their policies after several years. Even when they're required to have them, they cancel their flood policies when they haven't had a flood for exactly the reason you're suggesting. And what we're suggesting, if you have a long-term insurance policy that gets tied to the property, not to the individual, and a long-term loan that encourages people to make their house safer, like investing in shutters and stronger roofs, and they get a loan, then they are going to get a better premium reduction, a larger premium reduction for having done that than the cost of the loan, and they won't have to think in exactly the way that you are posing that question to us. That is so. We're right with you on that. Just, just quick uh, on your uh, low probability uh, aspect, Robbie. These events used to be low probability. If you take a look at just what happened here in this country, so one country for the past five years, what you've seen is like crises one after another every six months, literally every six months. So the question we try to pose in the book, and everybody who has an interest in, in this issue should read it in a sense, is, well, if we are getting together five years from now, are we going to say, well, we should have seen that coming? I mean, if between 2001, 2006, and 2007, we have seen 20 crises, it's very likely that there will be another 20, if not 30 crises between, 20, or between uh, 2009 and 2013 and 14. Uh, the question now on the table is how do you prepare for the next crisis? And let me just have one little example to highlight what Erwan is saying on low probability. If you just think of the time dimension, which we're talking about, and you say there is a one in a hundred chance of a flood occurring next year, many people will say, well, that's a very small probability. I don't have to think about it. If you, on the other hand, pose the problem that there's a greater than one in five chance of having one or more floods over the next 25 years, a reaction will be very different. And so framing the problem in such a way that what you see as a low probability event for a very short time, like a year, can be a relatively high probability event. And that is exactly the same probability. We've just stretched the time dimension, and you see it differently, can begin to justify a whole set of activities that one might not otherwise take. I might be wrong, but I think the only insurance that we're required to buy right now is auto insurance if you want to get car registration. Homeowners on, on a mortgage. Okay, if homeowners on a mortgage. Not, okay. not, not, it, if you don't have a mortgage, you aren't required. Right. But if okay. you have a mortgage, a bank will require you to, okay. to take that. So, and flood insurance and on flood a mortgage. Insurance. All right. But, but – um, what what's what thought is being given to mandating certain activities, certain um, mitigating certain certain activities that will mitigate the risk of these catastrophes? Well, we would be very much in favor of a required flood insurance program uh, if one could begin to get the political dy dynamics in much the way that auto insurance, as you said, is required, because so many people in these areas do not have it, and then all of the disaster relief is forthcoming for all of us as taxpayers to pay. And these people themselves are upset because they may not even know 
that they are unprotected by uh, by not having it. And if they've canceled the policy, they may forget when the flood comes that they don't have that policy. So we have some sympathy. We don't uh, we don't necessarily advocate it strongly, but but we raise that question. In fact, a lot of these questions are being raised for people to think about. And as we show in the book, just for Katrina, what the Fed paid or paid or provide to people was two or three times more what the insurance industry reimbursed. Uh, what was that You're talking somewhere between 140, 160 billion dollars. So I know it seems like small compared to the financial crisis now. If you don't put a trillion dollars on the table, you know, you're, you're, you're nobody. Uh, but you're, you're talking about a lot of money, especially compared to what some of these disasters used to cost 20 years ago. You were talking about 500 million, one billion dollars, even in 2008 uh, price. Now you're talking about single event inflicting as much loss than what five or 10 years worldwide used to inflict 20 years ago. That That's radically different. And it's not going to get better. In Before Hurricane Hugo, which was in South Carolina in 1989, there was not a single disaster in the United States or the world that cost the insurance industry a billion dollars. Not a single disaster. Hurricane Hugo was the first disaster that had it in the spirit of what Erwan has just said. And then things, then you start talking about Hurricane Andrew and you're talking about 20 billion and then you talk about Katrina and you're talking just on insured losses in the 40 billion to 50 billion dollar range. And so we're really talking about a change because of the tremendous growth in these areas and more devastating disasters. If you look beyond the U.S., uh, uh, and you referred earlier to the politics of the situation. How do you see the role of governments in international catastrophes? For example, if you take the the tsunami uh, that hit Asia and, and uh, hundreds of thousands of very poor people uh, in parts of Sri Lanka uh, who were, who were, whose lives were devastated, what kind of solutions uh, should be put in place for people like that? Well, that? That's a big debate. I mean, that's a big debate, especially if you relate that to the notion of a changing climate and the fact that many poor countries and ma mainly or mostly the poor countries will be affected by the consequences. Uh, I mean, two things. The tsunami happened within 10 seconds. That's a very different type of catastrophes than hurricanes uh, for which you can see them coming two or three days before. With hurricanes, you can, or you have the time technically to evacuate people from the zone. With an earthquake or a tsunami, you don't have that time. Uh, that said, the international community did a lot in terms of early warning. After the um, December 04 tsunami you were referring to, um, trying to, to create enough technology so we can help uh, the poor country do, uh, do uh, some of its warning. Uh, We've been working over the past few years with many international organizations on these issues, ranging from the uh, United Nations, the World Bank, the uh, World Economic Forum, and the OECD in, in Paris. So these disaster issues are today one of the top priorities of most of these international organizations, uh, very different than where we, are, where we were 20 or 30 years ago, um, not only on the uh, casualty side, but also obviously on the economic side. Uh, these poor countries won't have the freedom or capacity to develop themselves because every other week or every other year uh, they are hit by a new catastrophe. So they are really trapped in a what we call poverty trap. We um, just to build on what Erwan said. We we just finished a study for the World Bank on uh, the question I think that you are raising in terms of what's the role of mitigation 
mitigation defining is adaptation. Uh, how do you can you do a better job of designing better structures in uh, areas and look at places like Jakarta and St. Lucia and, uh, to try to understand a little bit more what what the problem is. I think there are two things that we we were struck with. Um, one is uh, uh, the fatalities in the emerging economy, in the emerging world, is much greater than fatalities uh, in this country. And so we have to think about loss of life as an important part. The second is you don't have the institutions that exist for being able to provide the kind of protection that you have in our country, like insurance is generally absent in most of these areas. There are exceptions. Turkey has set up a, a new insurance program for after the earthquake of 1999. And there are other countries that are thinking of micro-insurance, and India has a number of programs there. And so what we see essentially is how do you begin to build up new institutions and think about roles that other international organizations, where the World Bank could play a very creative role, if you're going to lose a large number of people and you can do things to try to re reduce that Turkey, and it being an example where there's a forecast that a 40 to 60 percent chance that a devastating earthquake will really destroy Istanbul in the next 20 years, and that's well documented by seismologists. You have to do something here today in order to, and there's a prediction that it's not low probability, and we haven't done very much, and Turkey uh, doesn't quite know how to deal with it. We may have to, this is a global problem, and we have to try to address it. Just to wrap this up, um, in your wildest dreams, what do you hope this book will accomplish? Wildest dreams? Right. <laughs> that people will actually agree that we have a war with the weather and that war may be with ourselves and that we have to deal with this and that we have to reorient our thinking and really take more responsibility today because we tend to put this in the background and say it's not going to happen to me. So that is... That would be nice to have. Well, well just to uh, chime, on, chime in on that and just to come back to your original question on Armenia, Mukul, uh, I think what we've tried to do, and that's why we try to accomplish here, is to help the reader. I mean, there are many books out there, so why another book on disasters? Uh, as, as a publisher at MIT Press put it, that's the largest study done in the past 30 years on these issues, nothing less. Uh, so that, that's point number one, trying to help the reader as uh, top decision makers as citizens. And uh, step two will be obviously to change the world a little bit so we can be uh, living in harmony with our environment. I'm just afraid that uh, sometime it'll be uh, too long for us to, uh, to react or at least to wait for the next major series of hurricanes to say, oh, yes, they were right a few years back. So let's try to hack now, uh, now that we have a time horizon to, to do things uh, rather than waiting for uh, the next hurricane to strike. And fundamentally, the question you have to ask yourself as someone listening to this podcast is how much I'm willing to lose when the next catastrophe strike. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you both of you. Thank you. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.